Reformation aspect of uh, church history. We talked about the falling away, the things that began to happen, the changes in the New Testament church that led to what is known as the Catholic Church today, and the problems that that caused and, and the things that happened that brought about this Reformation. Of course, the whole idea of Reformation is to reform or to fix something that is broken. And uh, that was originally the idea that uh, these men had, and they're great men in the aspect that they were uh, able to identify a problem, and they were able to understand that something needed to be done. They didn't hardly, uh, they didn't quite go far enough. They uh, took that avenue of reformation to fix the Catholic Church, which is not fixable. Can't fix that. It just has to simply be done away with and go back to the original. But their efforts led to this idea of restoring the New Testament church because as this Protestant movement began to develop and that Protestant movement simply uh, protesting the Catholic church and from that Protestant movement all of these other denominations began to develop and it was... From that scenario, that great men that we read about, uh, Ben Franklin, uh, the, the Campbells, Thomas and Alexander, uh, and, and many other men, Raccoon John Smith or several, uh, John Kelly, that uh, they saw the problems within that. And notice what they didn't do. They didn't say, well, let's reform these denominational organizations. They said, let's get rid of that. Let's go back to the Bible. And so in this study of the Reformation, we talked about uh, John Wycliffe and the things that he did toward, uh, excuse me, uh, reforming this Catholic Church. We noticed that he was uh, known as the morning star of the Reformation, and he was the first man who distinguished himself in this fight against the papacy, this, this war that was uh, beginning to be waged against the Catholic Church. Of course, Wycliffe was an English uh, scholastic philosopher. He was a theologian. He was a biblical translator. He was a reformer. He was a priest. And he was a seminary professor at the University of Oxford. And we noticed that his greatest work was, in fact, translating the Bible into the English language. And we talked about... Uh, his doing that, and as a result of his doing that, these rules came uh, into existence from the Catholic Church, known as canons. And one of those canons was that the Scripture could not be translated into the, quote, barbarian tongue, anything outside of Latin, okay? And it was... Uh, uh, and when we get into this next individual we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, the uh, the idea of the... Bible being translated into the common language, the English language at that time here in uh, uh, the European area was uh, viewed as a death sentence to those who would dare to put their hands on a translated version of the Bible because now you're going beyond what the Pope wants and what the priest can tell you to do and the bishops and the cardinals. And uh, they said that was dangerous in every aspect of uh, uh of it coming to be in the hands of people. Now, as we uh, let's finish up, have just a few things to 
mention about Wycliffe here. And we talked about uh, the uh, inquisitions that were put into place. These uh, uh, bishops were given the power to go from town to town in whatever area in which they lived to be able to be the authority in locating these heretics. Of course, the heretic was the person who was either translating the Bible and they really wanted to get a hold of, of Wycliffe or anyone who put their hands on the Bible and dared to read it for themselves. And so uh, these, uh, uh, these inquisitions were uh, put into power and as many as a thousand people lost their lives uh, because of these efforts. And we ended with the, the uh, comparison of these inquisitions to the uh, witch trials that happened in Europe and in New England, in our own nation. And that's basically what they were doing. They were, uh, with sole authority, placing these people on trial, and they had already determined what the result was going to be, and so they just simply put them to death. Now, toward the latter parts of Wycliffe's life, he, as he was translating the Bible, he fell ill. And uh, one of the peoples that he targeted was this group of friars, these different uh, uh, categories of these friars uh, who were upholding this Catholic doctrine, uh, the indulgences and uh, uh, the idea of uh, purgatory, the idea of changing the organization and the things that were done, the way that sins were forgiven, instituting the confessional. And so... They all thought he was on his deathbed that he was going to die. So a group of these friars went to his home and they surrounded his bed. And as he was laying there dying, they encouraged him to repent of the disparaging things he said against them and for his work of translating the Bible. And so after they had their say, he called for his servant to help him prop himself up on the on a pillow and with a, a certain tone in his voice that uh, was described as to be unmistakable what he was trying to uh, relay to these people, he said, I will not die. In fact, I will continue to do what I'm doing and will finish the translation of the Bible. And that's exactly what he did. And he ultimately translated the whole Bible. And he stood in the face of those men. And he said that's what he was going to do. And he said he would live to declare the evils of those friars. Ultimately, uh, the sheriffs and, and uh, uh, the magistrates were given power to go locate all of these people who dare have a copy of this Bible and to publicly burn them. So people would get the idea. Uh, don't associate with anybody who would attempt to translate the Bible and don't you dare uh, be found with one in your presence. Now, let me give you a couple examples of some of these men who were, uh, were found and murdered in this way. In 1401, a man by the name of William Sauter, uh, described as a devout man, described as someone who wanted to obey the the scriptures of the Bible, the words of God, though he was uh, headed in the wrong direction, he still had the idea that something was wrong that needed to be changed. And so uh, he was burnt in the town of Smithfield and uh, charged with being a heretic. 
Now, he kind of got off a little easy. Uh, Jay Badby, he was burnt in a barrel. He kind of got off a little easy. If you could say that's easy, but I guess that's relative, right? There was a man by the name of John, uh, Sir John Oldcastle. Sir John Oldcastle was known as a man who would frequently shelter preachers in his castle. People who wanted to get a hold of the translation of the Bible, people who wanted to read it, people who wanted to preach from it. So he would give them aid and comfort in what they were doing. Well, of course, that was absolutely in opposition to what the Catholic Church wanted. And uh, uh, he was encouraged by Henry V to give up his faith, to change his faith, but when he refused to do that in 1413, he was condemned as a pernicious heretic. Now, as the, uh, quote, trial of this man was ongoing, they allowed him out of jail for a period of time. And since they allowed him out of jail for a period of time, he managed to escape the area. And uh, he was uh, he went up to Wales. But in 1417, he was recaptured, and this is how they burned him alive. It says he was roasted over a slow fire because he was deemed a heretic, all because he wanted to be able to have a copy of the Scripture, and he wanted other people to be able to have a copy of the Scripture. That's a little extreme, isn't it? So this great persecution... Uh, continued and it worsened, but here's the thing. The people had gotten a little taste of what it meant to come out of darkness into light. And once those wheels started rolling, there was no way it was ever going to stop. And that is one of the things that John Wycliffe did and that members of the Lord's Church today ought to appreciate him for that. Though he didn't uh, complete his mission, he didn't uh, move toward restoring the New Testament church, he did shine a light on the problems of the Catholic church and he pointed to the fact that we all need a copy of the Bible. We need to be able to read it for ourselves and to understand it for ourselves. And these are great examples, living examples of someone saying, don't take my word for it, read it for yourself. And so I think we owe these men a great uh, debt of gratitude and uh, those efforts and desires led for the Reformation to take hold in other parts of Europe as well. Any comments, questions? I think as we, as we see this great uh, movement of people embracing the, the gospel, I think we see, see it in this day and age in different areas as well. Now, we don't see it so much in our own nation. Because you can walk into a house anywhere and they've got five copies of the Bible laying around. That may have a foot of dust on it, maybe not been opened in 25 years, but most people have got a copy of the Bible. I've got 50 copies of the Bible, you know. Uh, and you all have several copies of the Bible. I don't know how many copies we have laying around this building. But what the difference you see is when you go to a foreign nation. Some of these underdeveloped third world nations... And you go and what you run into and what you notice is people who are starving for the Bible, starving for the gospel. 
because they've been listening to someone tell them what they ought to do. They don't know from uh, personal study what they ought to do. They've been relying on uh, someone else for 20 or 40 or 50 years, right? I've seen people that, uh, of course, it's kind of hard to tell someone's age when you go into a third world country because they live hard lifestyles, okay? It's difficult. Eating today is a job in and of itself, and it, it brings a lot of burden on a person. So a person may look to be 100 years old, and they may be 50 years old, okay? So they, they've lived a hard life, but those people are starving for the gospel. And we see it happening, uh, you know, uh, 400, 500 years ago, 600 years ago. People starving for the gospel because they've never had it in their hands. Now, we can't imagine that, can we? It's hard to imagine someone not being able to have a Bible. You go to Walmart and you buy them all day long for $5, right? And uh, you could uh, most of the time you could, you could roll into about any kind of a organization claims to be a church and they'll give you one if you ask, wouldn't they? So we don't, it, it's hard for us to imagine not being able to have the Word of God. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine uh, that feeling of all of a sudden the light being turned on and now you've got something you've never had before. That's kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? I'm thankful that I've never had to suffer in that way. But then again, I don't truly understand what it means to find a treasure that great that I've never seen before. You know... People go out into the world today and they run into people who've never heard the name Jesus. Never. Don't know who that is. You know, we think about that in this country and that's hard to understand, hard to believe. But it's true. I've met some of those people myself. And, uh, you know, it's a tragedy that this, that it ever came to this. That that was part of this falling away that that uh, developed and manifested itself into what we know as the Catholic Church today. Again, we have to impress upon ourselves. Paul was not pointing to the Catholic Church. He was pointing to, I believe, Gnosticism, which manifested itself later on into this Catholic Church because the Pope knows everything, right? The priest knows anything you need to know. You don't have to worry about it. Any comments, questions? Sam. Hmm. Sam says that this new trade agreement that we're having now, uh, uh, they say will, with China will drive up the cost of Bibles because most of our Bibles are printed, or a lot of our Bibles are printed in China. I didn't know that. But that, that's, that stands to reason, you know. We don't produce a whole lot, I don't know, in this nation anymore. But... <clears throat> You know, even even at the idea of the price going up, you know, the Bible's not going to cost us a whole lot. If someone wanted to get a hold of a Bible, they would be able to, right? Not so in a lot of places. I remember when I was in northeast India, we went into the jungles of northeast India, and we had six Bibles that were translated in that Assamese language. That's all we had was six. It's hard. It was hard to get them. Translated in that language, so we go into the into the jungle, thousands and thousands of people, 
that we came into contact with, and we got six Bibles. What are you going to do with that? Right? You just have to carry them with you everywhere you go and uh, you know, read from your English translation, get the translator to, to uh, translate it for you, and, and then, even at that, that can be a little dangerous, can't it? You know, that can be a little dangerous because uh, some things do not translate well into other languages. That's why it's so important to have a, a literal translation of the Bible, not a, a, a thought translation or, you know, uh, different things like that. Uh, so, but it, it's, uh, it's something to consider, people not having... Uh, copies of the Bible. Any other comments? All right, let's turn our attention to a man by the name of William Tyndale. William Tyndale. Now, if we were going to follow a strict uh, chronology of these men during this Reformation movement, we would go from Wycliffe to Martin Luther. But what I want us to do, we, we've noticed this wonderful work of Wycliffe, and for us to truly grasp uh, uh, what I think we need to, to understand of the importance of having a translation of the Bible, we're going to skip ahead on this one occasion here, and we're going to talk about William Tyndale, because I think we need to understand the basic principle that these men lived by. They lived by the idea that we ought to return to apostolic purity. Now, again, they didn't accomplish that, but that was kind of the grease that got the wheels moving toward the direction of where we are today and where we uh, being able to be a part of uh, members of the Lord's church. Now, at the opening of the 16th century, a great interest to the world surrounded four men. Lefevre in France, Zwingli in Switzerland, Luther in Germany, and Tyndale in England. Now here's what's so amazing about these four men. They were completely unknown to each other at the beginnings of their work. Now Tyndale obviously came to understand the works of Luther and men like that toward the end of his life. But these men would go on to make such an impression on the world that would be everlasting. Uh, we're still talking about them. And not just uh, uh, religious people, historians talk about them. Uh, in France, in Switzerland, and in Germany, the voices of these men were being lifted up. They were trying to shine a light onto the problems of the Catholic Church. They were trying to show the corruptness the uh, uh, the worldliness of this Catholic Church, and they wanted their countrymen to be able to hear uh, the unadulterated truth of the Bible, be able to look at it themselves, and to be able to obey it on their understanding, not what someone told them. But the same thing was true in England. Uh, about a century and a half, Tyndale was doing his work, or his work was beginning to be done. Uh, so uh, uh, now, when we look at Tyndale, his procedure that he went about with his ideas of Reformation were different 
than that pursued in other places. He went about it a little bit differently. Uh, he had voiced opposition to the Catholic Church. He had embraced this idea of uh, taking the Bible for what it says, for reading it yourself. But by doing that, he was driven out of his native country to never set foot on his native soil ever again. Now, that didn't happen to these other men. We look at Lefebvre in uh, uh, France. When he was more than 100 years old, he, he grieved over the fact, and this is what he, how he described it, that he was not and had never demonstrated the courage of a martyr. Uh, we see uh, Zwingli uh, in the battle for his country. He died in his native land. Luther died in his death chamber in Germany. But when we look at Tyndale, not only was his life taken from him, but he was pursued by Germany, he was pursued by France, he was pursued by Switzerland. And all those men, or all those different powers afforded Tyndale the opportunity to literally become a martyr for that, which he, for that in which he believed. Uh, not that that's something that we aspire to do, but uh, that's something that any Christian ought to be willing to do, right? To give themselves. That was what the whole idea of the revelation was. Jesus delivering his revelation by the hand of John, the apostle. And he, uh, he was telling those people in Asia, you got persecution coming. you got to get ready for this. And he was describing the things that would happen. We get over to Revelation 2, particularly verse 10. He said, uh, uh, you know, you be faithful even unto death, and I'll give you a crown of righteousness. And that's what God expects, right? And we're not holding up these men as New Testament Christians, but we are holding them up as people who started this movement of getting back to the Bible. Okay, and I think, again, we owe them a great debt of... Uh, of uh, Gratitude for that. So I think that, that Tyndale stands alone in several respects, especially in his efforts of translating the Bible. He gave his life over wholly to it. He was, everything about him was taken away from him. Everything. He didn't die at home in his death chamber. He wasn't on his bed surrounded by uh, servants. He was strangled to death and his body was burned to ashes. And so he was hated, and uh, the the Catholic Church and the King of England wanted to uh, get rid of him in a hurry. Now, I want us to kind of understand the background here a little bit to him. The uh, the the political condition in England was, especially under uh, Cardinal Wolsey, it was not conducive to having translated copies of the Bible. In fact, it was exactly the opposite. Now, it wasn't conducive to uh, promoting that, but at a time, there was uh, not as much objection to it. Have you ever heard the name Erasmus? Erasmus was uh, a man who was a known as a, a, a humanitarian... Christian. Okay, he used humanitarian philosophy 
And he actually translated some uh, portions of the Bible. And he was friendly with uh, uh, King George VIII and was in a lot of ways encouraged by him to do that. Okay, But mostly what, what uh, Erasmus did was wrote against doctrines of the Catholic Church. Now, it's a lot easier to write a book in your own words, of uh, uh, denouncing certain aspects of an organization. It's a whole other thing to be simply translating the Scripture to give it to people for them to discover those truths on their own, right? And so he was, I, w- I don't want to say he was overlooked, but he was. Uh, the, the main focus was not on him so much as it was these other men. Well, we have Tyndale coming along and kind of taking some encouragement from some of the things that Erasmus did. He begins this translating of the New Testament, okay? And while he was in England, he uh, found himself in uh, uh, the home of a family by the name of Walsh, okay? They were very wealthy. They were very affluent. And he made friends with them. He uh, he began to... Uh, uh, build a relationship with them. Now, at the beginning, this family would invite priests and uh, friars and and leaders of the Catholic Church into their home, and they would eat around the table. And and all this time, Tyndale is speaking against these doctrines of the Catholic Church, and then he's in the process of translating the Bible. Not very well known at the time for his work, but it's still happening. Well, in his interaction with this family... Uh, he begins to discuss religious matters with Miss Walsh. Now, Miss Walsh says, you have these professional theologians coming in here. They make hundreds of pounds, uh, uh, are paid hundreds of pounds a year to know what they're talking about. And you're just a, a simple, poor man. Am I supposed to take your word over these professional uh, priests? Well... That was a little embarrassing for him. He didn't really know how to uh, how to handle that. So what he did was he took a copy of one of Erasmus's books and he translated that into English and he gave her the book. And she read the book and then it began to dawn on her there were some big problems with this Catholic church. And so that kind of bridged this gap between Tyndale and Miss Walsh. So over time, they began to uh, the uh, Miss Tyne, or Miss Walsh began to uh, appreciate Tyndale for what he was doing and his great work, and so they allowed him to stay in their home, and he began in earnest this translating of the Bible. I think he was there probably about six months, and kind of word started getting out of what this man was doing, and so uh, uh, the king didn't like it. Pope didn't like it. And now, here's a few things we need to understand about, I said George VIII, Henry VIII. This idea of not allowing the Bible to be in the hands of the people kind of climaxed under Henry VIII because he was a very ambitious man. He was very proud of what uh, his knowledge of divinity. He aspired to be the Pope himself because, remember, at this time, there was this big power struggle. The Pope said the uh, the king is kind of like the moon to the sun. 
right? Just a lesser light. So uh, the Pope, he was able to depose kings at one point in history. And so Henry VIII wanted that power. He was very ambitious. And so if you want to be the Pope, what don't you want the people to have? Copy of the Scripture, okay? Because you can discover pretty quickly that that whole organization doesn't fit the pattern of the Bible. And also at this time, England and Rome had a very close relationship. England uh, had different avenues of revenue that they collected from the people and sent it back and helped support Rome. They supported that hierarchy. Uh, and now remember again, Henry VIII wanted to be the Pope. He wanted to be king and pope. He wanted to kind of sew up the power, right? Uh, uh, corner the market, as it were. And so uh, he wanted to maintain that strength. So England was the largest supporter of Rome. And uh, so uh, when uh, Henry VIII discovered that Tyndale was... Uh, beginning to translate the Scripture, he thought he needed to step in and uh, he needed to stop that. So the home of Walsh, the heat started getting uh, to rise a little bit, so he had to leave. He didn't want to bring unnecessary uh, problems for the Walsh family, so he left and he went to London. Okay, He was in another part of England. And so he moved to London, and he hoped to meet up with a bishop there. The bishop's name was, uh, the bishop of London was Cuthbert Tunstall. Okay? Cuthbert, or Cuthbert Tunstall was uh, a very liberal-minded uh, bishop, and so he was uh, interviewing uh, Tyndale, and he acknowledged that he had uh, great scholarship. He uh, saw the great talents that he had, but he said, look, I've already got too many people living in my home. You need to move on go somewhere else. When in reality, what he saw in Tyndale was just simply competition. Okay, He saw someone who was standing up against what this man believed in. Tyndale kind of misread him a little bit. Instead of finding a haven there, he found someone who would ultimately become his enemy. But... While in London, there was a very prominent, rich, scholarly, well-learned man heard him preach a sermon. And this man's name was Humphrey Monmouth. And uh, he was a traveling cloth merchant. And so he took uh, Tyndale into his home. He stayed there for about six months. And in earnest, he began to translate the uh, Greek New Testament into the English language. Now, for his kindness to uh, Tyndale, Monmouth was arrested and imprisoned in the Tower of London. The government just wasn't going to put up with that. They didn't want that happening uh, right under their noses. But, as he lived in London, he came into possession of some of the other works of these men around different uh, parts of Europe, and he noticed something. He began to notice that people who had copies from the works of these other men that we mentioned, they were being imprisoned, and they were being murdered simply for being found in possession of those works, denouncing the uh, the Catholic Church. 
Okay? Now, when we consider the works of Luther, he may have done some translating, but what he did mostly was he pushed this effort uh, to uh, uh, condemn and to rebuke the actions and the doctrines of the Catholic Church. And so uh, people were coming into possession of these things, and, and so he saw right away, if they're going to prison and they're being taken to the gallows or having their heads chopped off or, or roasted over a slow fire or whatever the case may be, how much more dangerous is it if you were found with a copy of the New Testament in the English language? So Tyndale was kind of at a crossroads. Did he move forward? Or did he simply say, I think I've done enough for the cause. I'm going to stop right here and I'm going to live out a life of uh, you know, peace. Well, that's certainly not what, it, uh, what he chose. But what he did realize is it wasn't safe to be in London. Not only was it not safe to be in London, it wasn't safe to be in England. And so he boarded a ship and he took, a, he took a direct route to Hamburg, Germany. He left uh, England to never set foot on his native country soil again, to never return, cutting off all communication and access to his family, to his friends, to anything that was a part of a, quote, normal life that he had led once before. Any comments? Questions? Are you familiar with the book called Fox's Book of Martyrs? Fox's Book of Martyrs, obviously not an inspired work, but it was a, uh, it's a compilation of, of histories of uh, people who handed down traditional ideas of, of the deaths of, for example, all 12 apostles. Okay? Uh, again, uh, we're not aware of... Uh, exactly the way these apostles died, uh, except for just a few. But anyway, Fox also remarked about Tyndale. He remarked saying, uh, to give the people bare text of Scripture, he would offer his body to suffer what pain of torture, yea, what death his grace, referring to Henry VIII, would so that this be attained. So he was going to move forward in his translating of the New Testament from Greek to English so people could have copies of it themselves. So in 1524, he left England. uh, And he moved to Hamburg, Germany. Now, just a year prior, though, to his coming to London, now remember, Tyndale was all excited. He had uh, embarked on this great journey to fulfill what he, in his mind, was the work of God. And I think probably providentially, God set this movement into motion. They didn't exactly go the right direction, but it began this effort to go back to uh, uh, the, the, the unadulterated scripture of the Bible, only to be met with nothing but disappointment. And now he's having to leave home. And he's leaving behind everything that he knows. Now later on, as people wrote about him that knew him, he was described as mourning the poverty, the exile of his own native land, the bitter absence from his friends, the hunger, the thirst, the cold, the danger wherewith he was everywhere compassed, the innumerable hard and sharp fightings which he had to endure. Who does that kind of remind us of? 
Paul made a statement very similar to that, didn't he, to the Corinthians. He said, We're compassed about with all kinds of trouble. A day and a night I was in the deep, I was naked, I was hungry, I was uh, beaten with rods, I was stoned. You know, I, I've, I've endured it all. And he said, on top of all of that, the daily work of the church with which he was burdened. Not only did he have to worry about enemies without, he had to worry about enemies within, right? And the enemies within was, I believe, when he was talking about this initial falling away and these people moving toward Gnosticism from within the church, he had to face that. So now we see a man, not an apostle, not an inspired writer, but someone who believed in the integrity of the Bible and wanted to make copies of it and translate it into languages that you and I could understand. Again, every place in the world doesn't have that blessing, right? Uh, Most places do, but not everywhere has multiple copies of the Bible. Again, you know, go back to when I was in northeast India. We went into the jungles of of India with six copies of the Bible in that Assamese language. That's all we had. We didn't have multitudes and multitudes of Bibles, you know. We'd go buy a thousand Bibles in, in, you know, in an hour or two probably here in Chattanooga. You know, the only reason it would take that long is they have to drive probably from one store to the next because no one store is going to carry a thousand copies probably. But we can have access to them. Any comments? Questions? Yeah, Sam. I wonder how the judgment of these, these people who had no access to the Bible and they're only knowledge of the Scriptures, they're not really attentive to things someone else translates and so on. Yeah. And here's the question. This is a good question we need to ask, we need to consider, right? What about people who didn't have access necessarily to copies? of the Bible in, in, in their written language, okay? Uh, that's a sad situation, isn't it? And that's a situation that uh, is, you know, it's hard to uh, come to grips with that for people who have compassion for other people, right? And so let, let's begin by, by understanding and looking at it this way. What is the point of people going into... Uh, going into all the world, preaching the gospel. What's the point of that? That was what we know as the Great Commission, right? The point of that is to deliver that gospel, right? Why do they need that gospel? Without it, what happens? There's no salvation, right? There's no life without the gospel. Now, I want to listen to something that Paul said. <clears throat> Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, beginning this letter to the Thessalonians, as normally what he does, he commends the brethren for the things they're doing correctly. Right? He says in verse 3, We're bound to thank God always. For you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, 
so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations which uh, that you endure. He says, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. <coughs> so, to be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, do you have to suffer to be counted worthy of the kingdom of God? In the way that these... Do you have to suffer, suffer physical persecution? They suffered physical persecution, but that's not a prerequisite, is it? I've never been beaten because I was a Christian. That's not to say it won't come to that. And we, we need to be able to stand up and be what these people were. But you have to be a member of the kingdom of God to be counted worthy, right? Notice verse 6. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. They were being persecuted. God will take vengeance. It's up to God to do that, right? That's not our place. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power? So in order to avoid everlasting punishment, we need to have done two things. We need to have known God and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's how we obey the gospel, right? We first know God, then we obey the gospel. So, if you don't know God, what happens when Christ comes back. Punishment, right? Everlasting punishment. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, what happens? Everlasting punishment. Now, what should that make every one of us want to do? Take the gospel to anybody we can take it to so they can avoid that judgment. Now, those are the words of Paul, right? He was an inspired writer. He spoke the words of God. In fact, when we read Matthew chapter 28, uh, 18 through 20, and that's the uh, known as the Great Commission, right? Verse 20 says, Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the world or the age, Christian dispensation. And so it's our duty to take this message... Now, what was what was Tyndale trying to do? Trying to make copies of the New Testament so people could have it in their hands so they wouldn't have to rely on the priest. Now, should our hearts go out to people who were in a situation where, where through whatever reason they didn't have a uh, was able to get a hold of the the New Testament? You know, during this period of time, we know it as the Dark Ages. You know what they did with the Bible? They chained it to the pulpit. Why? Because you didn't have sense enough to be able to read it and understand it. It was in Latin. You couldn't understand it anyway. And the only uh, the only thing they wanted translated into a common language was some of the Psalms and the uh, uh, practices of the Catholic Church in their religious rites. 
And none of that is in the New Testament. So, you know, I don't know if that's a good answer or not to your question, but if you have not obeyed the gospel, you know, when Christ comes back, Paul says he'll take vengeance on those who don't know God and who have not obeyed the gospel of his Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a very sad thing. We ought to have compassion for those people. And, uh, you know, but here's the thing. We should never allow something like that to interfere with what I do today in the present, right, as far as my salvation. Uh, even family members, right? And that's a big that's a big problem with a lot of people. Someone, I can't tell you the people I've studied with who come to understanding of the gospel, but you know what? Someone in their family has already gone on into eternity who didn't do those things. And now that's a big roadblock for them because in their minds, here's what they're thinking. And this is what they say. I've heard this. If I obey the gospel, I'm condemning my father, my mother, my grandparents, or someone like that, right? Well, here's the thing. Those of us who have children, those of us who love anybody, do we want them to make the same mistakes we made? You know, I don't want my children to make the same mistakes I made. My dad didn't want me to make the same mistakes he made. And when we look in Luke chapter 16, when Jesus talked about the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man went to torments. He went to the Hadean realm. Paul called it the third heaven, divided into two places, torments and paradise. Lazarus was in paradise, rich man in torments. It was divide, uh, separated by this huge gulf. It could not be traversed. And what was on the mind of the rich man? Well, it didn't change who he was because he was still selfish. He still viewed Lazarus as some kind of a servant. Go go have Lazarus dip his finger in water they might cool my tongue. But ultimately, he got around to being concerned with his family back home. He said, send Lazarus that my brothers, and he had five of them, that they will not come and be here with me. So here is the thing. If someone is lost in eternity, uh, I've got family members myself. I don't know of any Christian who doesn't that was not a Christian, that went into eternity not having done those things that God said to do. So now they're in God's hands, right? They're in God's hands. He'll, he'll handle it. God always does that which is right. If one of my family members is lost, they certainly don't want me to be lost to, right? And I think that's what we learn from this account of the rich man and Lazarus. They don't want you to be lost. And so we can't allow people who have gone on into eternity to affect our decision-making right now that would prevent us from doing that which we read in the Bible, right? Anyway, that's that's kind of my understanding. Any comments or questions? All right. Uh, we'll end right here. I think we went over a little bit. We'll pick up uh, here next time talking about John Tyndale. I uh, appreciate your attendance. Thank you for your attention.